I don't believe that faith and work starts with Sunday school posters and church slogans and Bible verses on your desk. I think, I think faith and work starts by reweaving shalom inside the workplace, making the workplace a life-giving place, having a reason for people to say, tell me the reason for the faith and the hope that you've got. Welcome to the 9 to 5 podcast, conversations with Christians about lives of faith, integrity, and excellence at work. They are from Christians in Commerce, a ministry supporting and encouraging men and women to be Christ in the workplaces. We hope you enjoy this episode. This episode features Paul Larson, a consultant, coach, and connector for Giant Worldwide and ICG Advisors. Paul was one of our lightning talks during our Coworkers in Christ gathering on October 5th, 2018. Now here's Paul. The main thing, you know, we can say a lot of things about things, but if we miss the main thing, we're naive. We're superficial, right? We can talk about management and, and structure and capital stacks and, and all kinds of businessy terms, but if we miss the main thing, we're naive. Who knows who Peter Drucker is? Peter Drucker was famous for saying, under pressure, Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Anybody hear that before? And he actually once said, and structure for lunch. Okay? Culture is the key. You see, people come to work, and they've got all their baggage, right? The fight with their spouse, their kids are messed up in school, maybe they're upside down with their mortgage, or maybe it was simply that someone cut them off in traffic on the way to work. But they bring all that baggage to work. And then they spend the best hours of their day at work. And if work doesn't make them better, it cascades, doesn't it? It goes down. And they're not better the next day either. So with life, if work is life-sucking, that's what you get. If it's life-giving, and that's what we can do. We have life. We can give life. So culture is the key. So here's a little tool we've got talking about culture, the culture in your workplace. Um, and uh, uh, we've got on the, on, the, on the vertical, we've got support. On the horizontal, we have challenge, okay? And some people would talk about a structure where, or a workplace where that's a dominating culture, you know? It's like, uh, get that done by Friday because there's 20 people that want your job, right? The threats, the manipulation. But sometimes we see extreme protector cultures where there's a lot of cheering and a lot of kumbaya, but maybe the expectations aren't so clear. <laughs> and that can lead to sense of entitlement. And unfortunately, sometimes it can whipsaw into domination because you still have to make the numbers, okay? So it can create a lot of confusion there. And what we try to do is we try to head toward a liberator culture, right? We, and that's hard it's because naturally we're going to bounce between protector and dominator. But a liberating culture knows how to calibrate that support and challenge. Okay, so liberating leaders are those that fight for the highest possible good in those they lead. What support or challenge do they need right now, right? Uh, what, are the, what tendencies are undermining their effectiveness? Okay, or maybe uh, how can we help them get to the next level? Leadership, folks, is, is less about organizing and assigning tasks. These days, leadership is about influence. What do I mean by that, or why is that? It's because people have choices, right? Labor market's getting tight. People have choices. People can work remotely. They've got all kinds of options today. And millennials, 
Anybody know what the turnover rate is among millennials? It's 40% a year across all industries. Some are as high as 80%. Now that's no good for companies. That's really expensive, right? To replace a skilled worker every two years. But it's not good for the millennials either. They're not getting the mentoring. They're not getting the experience. They're not getting the context, right? But what's the secret of that? Is it beanbag chairs and foosball tables? Well, no, not everybody's Google, right? But if you can create a culture where people are better because they work there, that's what, whether millennials tell you that or not, they want to be better because of where they work. But what if you're not the boss? Nobody's off the hook here, see? Because we're all influencing. We're all influencing all the time. And if you can see in these circles, these are different spheres of our life where we're all, all influencing all the time. Now, sometimes our influence is intentional. Unfortunately, many times it's accidental. Things seem to atrophy, don't they? So uh, the idea of, idea of being intentional and understanding that even the person that just started work two, two weeks after us, we're leading. We're influencing them. We're having an impact there. But your effectiveness in leading others or influencing others is limited by how well you lead yourself. And your ability to lead yourself is limited by your ability to know yourself. Okay? Now, this is one of our tools now. It's an infinity loop because guess what? No one graduates from the school of self-awareness, right? It's kind of like sanctification. You're always peeling <laughs> back one more layer, right? But one thing I want to point out here, and I could speak for 40 minutes on this, but anyway, <laughs> our consequences are not simply the result of our actions. Our consequences are really a result of tendencies. And for most people, their tendencies are subconscious. We don't understand our tendencies. Other people understand our tendencies, but they're invisible to us. So how can we understand that better? What's it like to be on the other side of you? This is, this is so important to understand what it's like to be on the other side of you because most people assume that others hear and filter things the way we do. Guess what? And that there's a few outliers that don't get me. Research shows it's the opposite. Most people don't hear and filter things the way you do. So learning what it's like on the other side of you is extremely important and it's extremely humanizing to other people. The respect and the, the matter, the idea of feeling like it matters. One way the liberators can, can liberate people is, is try to avoid calling people out, but rather call them up. But what if you think you're calling people up and they feel like you're calling them out? Okay, back to the idea of what it's like on the other side of you. Faith at work. Um, I put this slide up here because I've been studying this idea of shalom quite a bit over the last few years. You know, shalom isn't just the absence of conflict, okay? It's, it's the way things ought to be, you know? Needs being met, gifts being manifested in a productive way. That's what shalom is, and that's, what, that's what's coming. That's what's re in the restored heavens and earth, is shalom. So I don't believe that faith and work starts with Sunday school posters and church slogans and Bible verses on your desk. I think... I think faith at work starts by reweaving shalom inside the workplace, making the workplace a life-giving place. 
having a reason for people to say, tell me the reason for the faith and the hope that you've got, right? So the idea of reweaving shalom is a, is a big one when it comes to uh, even, even having any kind of example of faith at work. What about teams? Um, this is saying a lot as well, but what does every management book tell you? What does every manager think? If things aren't quite going well with the team, what do we do? Get everyone on the same page. You ever heard that? Alignment. We've got to get everybody on the same page. Guess what? What we've learned is it starts upstream. It starts with communication and relationships. Any alignment you think you have is a mirage because as soon as it bumps up against people's walls of self-preservation, you don't have alignment anymore. Okay? Again, that's reweaving shalom. That's what we're talking about here. Um, I would suggest you search. Go online and search Google Aristotle. Anybody heard that? Heard of that? The Aristotle study? Fantastic. Google spent a lot of money studying a lot of teams, effective ones, ineffective ones. And you know what they found out? The teams, uh, the effectiveness of the team has very little to do with the, um, having superstars on the team. Very little to do. It has everything to do with psychological safety. Can we fail? Can we safely fail <laughs> on this team? It goes back to relationships. Do we trust each other? Can we trust each other? Huge. Read that, go to that, and learn about the Aristotle study. It'll, it's, it's very important. So reweaving shalom at work. Everybody leads. Be intentional. Understand everyone is leading all the time. Okay? Number two, know yourself to lead yourself. Okay? Self-awareness is very important. We're not talking about self-esteem. We're talking about self-awareness. Okay? That, that process of sanctification. Number three, what's it like on the other side of you? And how can I be a liberating leader? How can I make sure that I'm bringing people along? And number four, to drive team effectiveness, focus on psychological safety. If you want to get off on the right foot each morning, you probably want to check out Christians in Commerce Workday emails. They're short and informative, sent to your inbox early in the morning. Wake up to stories and insights about people transforming their workplace. These daily workday emails inspire and encourage us in living out God's mission, where we spend 60% of our waking hours at work. Sign up today by going to workingforafather.com. The second part of this episode features one of our Christ at Work stories, an individual's personal experience that illustrates a life of faith, integrity, and excellence being lived out in the workplace. Today's story comes from Jim Ganther. Some years ago, I was a partner in the law firm of Ganther and Fee, and we had our offices on the 10th floor of a 42-story office building in downtown Tampa. And one of our corporate clients had its offices on the same 10th floor of the same building. So we saw a lot of each other. I was over in their office almost every day. Their receptionist was running documents over to our office very frequently. The staffs became friendly with one another. One day, the receptionist, Emily, came over to our office and she was in tears. She and her husband had been trying to have children unsuccessfully. They went to doctors and it was discovered that she had a cyst on one of her ovaries 
Now, cysts like that are typically perhaps the size of a pea, and you can remove them arthroscopically, everything will be fine. But hers was the size of a lemon, and it was going to require invasive surgery to remove. And because of its size, it almost certainly had blocked the blood flow to that ovary. It's called avascular necrosis. And they were going to have to remove the ovary and the cyst. And she was distraught. And we comforted her, and, and I said, if you come back after work, we'll pray with you. She thanked us and left, didn't know if she was going to come back, but just after 5 o'clock, she returned to our office, and two other attorneys and I brought her into my office, sat her down, and we prayed her up. We prayed for her peace. We prayed for her doctors. We prayed for her healing. And she dried her tears and left. The surgery was the next morning. They did a last-minute ultrasound to get the exact location of this lemon-sized cyst, and it just wasn't there. Rather, there was a cyst the size of a pea, which they removed arthroscopically. No problems, no avascular necrosis, nothing. Praise God. Now, that may sound like a great healing story, and it is, but to me, the real point of the story is, why'd she come to my office? Why did she come to the law firm of Ganther and Fee? I don't think it was for prayer. I don't think that was even on her mind. But she knew that she was going to get a listening ear and a shoulder to cry on, and she did. But how did she know to come there? We are called to be Christ in the workplace, but we are not called to be an invisible Christ. Invisible Christ is two things. It is safe and it is useless. We are called to be the visible Christ. We are called to be a light on a lampstand. How do you do that? Then as now, if you came to my office, you might see some religious artwork on the wall, a carving of the Holy Family on my credenza, and if you look really closely, a Bible under the drifts of paper on my desk on a good day. But that don't do it, because those are clues, but nobody is converted by interior decoration. <laughs> Rather, it was a year or so of going to that office and saying, good morning, Emily, and calling her by name. Is the boss in? I'll tell him you're here and having a conversation with her. A year or so of doing that built a lampstand. That brought her to our office, and then we could show the light Jesus wants us to be in a place where we can be found so that finding us, others find Christ. Thanks for listening to this podcast. You'll want to check out our website at workingforourfather.com. It's constantly being updated with new content to support you and others in living your faith at work.